0: Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me on episode one of the new season, season four of Governed by God. And this season, I wanted to try and do something slightly different, give the season kind of a a theme, if you will. Um, It's it's a tall order. We'll see if uh, I'm able to do this or not. But the theme is going to be looking at historical items, historical documents or books uh, regarding law, civics, and government to see what we can glean from the past. I know I'm a big fan of history. I love history. Uh, Not everyone does. I want to try to make this both useful and enjoyable, um, not boring everyone with lots of long documents that no one really cares about, But, but I do think we've lost something in our culture regarding history and why we have the things that we have and why we do the things that we do as a culture. So but before we do that, I want to begin, just like I try to begin every episode, with a law or passage from the Bible of the day. And today's passage of the day is Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. So it's kind of a long one, I don't want to spend uh, too long on it, but I'm going to read it. We'll go through a few points here and uh, draw out some principles of application. So, starting in verse 18 The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the task collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. All right, so that's our passage. There's a lot there, of course, but what is the context? We see here that John the Baptist had already been arrested and is beginning to have doubts about Jesus. Uh, Not sure, is is he really the Son of Man? Is he really the Messiah? Uh, John is hearing all these things happening, but what he's not seeing is a massive um, overthrow of the Roman government or uh, a monarchy being established with King Jesus or anything like that. And so, He answers the the disciples of John the Baptist, and it it seems like this is happening in public, that the disciples of John the Baptist are are, are asking Jesus this question. As soon as he answers them, he then turns and talks to the crowd. Now, this crowd is a mixed crowd. It, It clearly has tax collectors in it, because... Uh, they're declaring God is just after hearing what Jesus said. There's other people, commoners, there's Pharisees, there's lawyers. There's a mix of people, a whole bunch of different people, right? And what Jesus is pointing out here, though, is he's kind of criticizing th- their tendency to bounce from different opinions. And they're never satisfied. With whatever they're seeing. It's kind of like they're being irrational and inconsistent because he begins to ask them some questions. What did they expect to see going out in the wilderness? Did they expect to see a reed that was shaken by the wind? So that's a reference to uh, someone who uh, always goes with the flow, if you will, who is always a changing position based on where the wind blows. Uh, and the same kind of question, what do you expect to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Essentially just a, a noble person, uh, someone who would live in luxury in king's courts? Uh, again, no, their expectations of John the Baptist were wrong, and their expectations of Jesus are wrong too, okay, and what they're expecting of him. And then he goes into this a uh, little story about children sitting in the marketplace and playing this song. It must have been a common children's game, perhaps, or, or maybe he's just making it up, but uh, I imagine that the people there would be very familiar with this, um, uh, this, this this song or this game that he's referring to. And the game is this. Uh, the children would sit and call to one another, you know, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not weep. So, again, what's happening there? Those who play the flute, they are expecting people to dance for them. And then those who sing a dirge, like they're mourning, they are expecting people to weep in response to that. And so Jesus then takes that that children's game and he applies it to both himself and John the Baptist. Because he says, you know, John the Baptist wasn't eating any bread. And he wasn't drinking any wine. He ate locusts and honey. And, and the people are criti- were criticizing John the Baptist, saying, oh, he's got a demon. Now, maybe that's more of the Pharisees criticizing it. But he's talking to the crowd. And he's saying, you said that he has a demon because he didn't partake of bread and wine like everybody else. But then those same people, they see Jesus partaking of bread and wine, and they're accusing him of gluttony and drunkenness. So it's a lose-lose situation. You can't win either way. If you're eating bread, drinking wine, you're a drunkard and a glutton. If you're not eating bread and not drinking wine, you must be demonic or have some kind of demonic uh, influence there. And so the point here is that humans in general, and it's clear in this, in this crowd, they're very irrational. Their desires are changing. Um, they can be critical of anything. If people want to find criticism, They can always find it. And there are some people, some groups of people, or just some individuals that are never satisfied. And they can find opposition and criticism with anything, whether it's John the Baptist or Jesus. And both men, very holy men, were deeply criticized. They weren't engaging in these sins. John the Baptist did not have a demon. And Jesus was not a glutton or a drunkard. But people... Tried to make those accusations stick to them because they were being contrarian, irrational, and critical. And I think the tendency for us today, this is a human tendency, it's a sinful tendency, is we want to play God and call the shots. We want God to do what we want. I mean, we want people to do that. We want people to dance to our tune. Uh, whatever we want them to do, we want them to give in to us and submit to our whims, our our desires and our emotions. Uh, even, and so, when we are being unstable and changing our minds, we want them, everyone else, to change uh, to change with us. Okay, we want to call the shots, and so we do the same thing to God. We want Him to accommodate us, to make God do what we want based on our feelings, our expectations, and our desires. And the problem is, though, is that the reverse should be the case. We need to criticize our own expectations. We need to submit to God and not make him submit to us. He is the one who is stable and perfectly rational, perfectly logical, and perfectly holy, and we are not. So we're the ones that need to be brought into submission to God's will um, and then we will have a firm foundation upon which to stand,, uh, right? We're not going to be tossed about with every wind of doctrine, like a reed blowing in the wind. Um We're going to be very stable, okay, if it's if our foundation is built upon Christ and what he what he says. So I think those are the the key principles and application of this passage. um and it's it's very clear that there was a sense of cancel culture, if you wanted to call it that. In those days, that if the culture wanted to criticize you, they could, and they could throw names at you, and try to make them stick. And they did it to John the Baptist, and they were doing it to Jesus. Um, and so, you know, we can expect no less um, as the followers of Jesus. Okay, so that is our our passage of the day, and so now I want to get into the topic. I don't know if it's related or not. It might be related a little bit. But this is, um, you know, episode one, so I want to start off with a, a look at a historical document. Okay, so what did I pick today? Well, I don't know. I'm an American, and uh, I love U.S. history, so I decided to pick uh, a book about U.S. history, about the American culture, the American republic. Now, this book is called Democracy in America, and it was written... Oh, almost 200 years ago in the 1830s by a man named Alexis de Tocqueville and he's French uh, and he was a thinker and a philosopher and a diplomat and he came to the United States in the 1830s to study our culture he went he traveled around for many months he took extensive notes talked to people observed our culture from north to south uh, and then uh, drew some conclusions and wrote, pretty much a very massive tome of a book. Um, I have I have it in a, a two-volume set, and each volume has multiple parts and is over 600 pages long. So, I mean, without a typewriter, this guy wrote so much, uh, was able to put together so much information and draw out so many very good conclusions. I have not read the entirety of his work. I've only read chapters in certain parts of it. But the parts I have read, I've been impressed with all the time. Uh, And so what I want to talk about today is found in chapter 7 of part 2 of volume 1. For whatever that's worth, uh, there it is. Now, the title of the chapter is called The Omnipotence of the Majority in the United States and Its Effects. What is he talking about? He's talking about majority rule, that's a you know, the democracy, we live in a democracy, you know, a republic that has democratic tendencies, okay? There is a democrat there are democratic principles at play here, right? And so in a sense, we believe in majority rule, okay. And even today people talk about democracy, majority rule, da da da, da, da all the things, right? But he's talking about, okay, well, how does that relate to tyranny and omnipotence, all power? Okay, and so he has a few, there are a few good things he says, but a lot of warnings he gives about what is happening or some of the things that he sees or saw, I should say, in the early 1800s in America, the things that he saw that could, and I would say have become tyrannical and omnipotent, and I want to look through, I'm not going to read through the entire chapter, I'm going to read a couple of quotes here and there and draw out some things that I found to be particularly insightful. So how does he begin? So he says at the beginning of this chapter, the essence of democratic government is the dominion of the majority be absolute. Okay, well, that kind of makes sense. So the majority makes absolute power and anything outside of the majority is not acceptable. All right, it's not allowed. Now, then he goes on to look at, okay, well, in America, the legislature is the one that most willingly obeys the majority. Well, why is that? Because the legislature is elected. And he says that Americans want the members of the legislature to be chosen directly by the people for a very short period of time. Tocqueville says that forces the legislature to submit to the regular passions desires the the changing whims of the people okay they they are in subjection in a way to the desires and emotions and passions of the people of the majority i should say all right and you know there there might be some good to that and might be some bad to that and then he goes on and he talks about that there's a custom spreading and he says this he says a custom is spreading more and more in the united states that will end By making guarantees of representative government empty. So he says it happens frequently that the voters will name a person and trace a plan of conduct for him uh, and place a certain number of obligations upon him, which he cannot deviate from. All right. So essentially, uh, if, if the guy wants to get elected, there's all these... Uh, promises that he has to make, and all these restrictions upon him, and if he doesn't fulfill them, he's going to be out. And there's there's a sense in which that's good, okay, but that's a custom that can lead to some difficulties if it's not, you know, addressed. So, he goes on from there to talk about uh, the moral dominion of the majority, and it's, it's based on the principle that the interest of the greatest number of people, the majority, must be preferred over the interest of the of the few. All right, okay, fine. We we kind of agree with with that in in general, but he goes on to say that in the United States, the majority has an immense power uh, and a power of opinion, and that once the majority has formed their opinion on a matter. There is no obstacle that can stop or even slow its course and leave time for the majority to hear the cries of those whom it crushes as it goes. So essentially, he argues that once the majority has made up their mind, nothing can stop it. And so it's omnipotent in that sense. It's not in the hands of one person, but the majority. And this majority will be heard and will not tolerate any contrary opinions. That's what he sees or the things he's beginning to see in the 1830s in the United States. Then he goes on to talk about how this majority can become tyrannical in their power. And here's what he says. He says, I regard it as impious and detestable, the maxim that in matters of government, the majority of the people have the right to do anything. And I consider that the will of the majority is the origin of all powers. So what is he saying there? He says he does recognize that the will of the majority, whether you like it or not, that happens to be the origin of political power. But he does not like the idea that whatever the majority says, that's what goes, and they have the right to do whatever they want, okay? To do anything to anybody because simply it was a, a majority rule. And looking at it from kind of a big picture perspective, what is the majority if it's no if it's not any different than an individual who has opinions, and opposes a person who has different opinions? So essentially, he's arguing uh, you would never give uh, one person uh, the power to abuse uh, or hurt his adversaries. So why would you give a majority? Of the people, the power to hurt or oppress the minorities, Um, because the human heart is is sinful. He says, you know, gathering a whole bunch of men together doesn't change their character. Okay, Um, they they just become stronger because they are a group and they have more power um, together. There, he recognizes that there's always going to be power placed somewhere. Is it in a king? Is it in uh, a majority opinion? Is it in an aristocracy or a nobility? He, he understands that there's always going to be power, but he recognizes that there, that the only way to preserve liberty is that there have to be checks and balances, and, and it must be able to moderate itself. Okay, there have to be obstacles, and it has to be moderated. And he says a, a very interesting thing about omnipotence, He does say, omnipotence in itself seems to me something bad and dangerous. He then says, its exercise seems to me beyond the power of man, whoever he may be. And I see only God who can, without danger, be all-powerful, because his wisdom and his justice are always equal to his power. So there is no authority on earth so respectable in itself or vested with a right so sacred that I would want to allow it to act without control or to dominate without obstacles. So when I see the right and the ability to do everything, granted to whatever power, whether called people or king, democracy or aristocracy, whether exercised in a monarchy or republic, I say the seed of tyranny is there, and I try to go and live under other laws. What I most criticize about democratic government as it has been organized in the United States is not its weakness, as many people in Europe claim, but on the contrary, its irresistible strength. And what repels me the most in America is not the extreme liberty that reigns there. It is the slight guarantee against tyranny that is found. Now, when he when he means slight guarantee, he means there's, there's not much there. There's really not much of a guarantee uh, uh, of liberty against the tyranny of the majority. It's not the tyranny of, like, the president or the tyranny of a judge. It's the tyranny of the majority rule. And here's what he says why he makes that claim. He says, when a man suffers from an injustice in the United States, to whom does he appeal? To public opinion? But that's what forms the majority. To the legislative body? Well, that body represents the majority and obeys it. To the executive power? It's named by the majority and serves it. And he goes on to say that there really is no one to appeal to. Because the one that is oppressing you, or the one that is committing injustice, is the majority. So you can't appeal to the majority. It is the majority, and they're the ones that wield the power. But he does clarify here. He says, I'm not saying that at the present time in America, tyranny is practiced. I am saying that no guarantee against tyranny is found there, and that the causes For the mildness of government must be sought in circumstances and in mores rather than in laws. So he's saying the C's are there. The reason it doesn't happen is for some other reason. There's other reasons why the tyranny of the majority does not happen yet in America. Um, But that's not because of the laws. Okay, it's not because of that. Uh, It's not because... I mean, and it's because of the mores or the culture that it's in. And then he goes on to talk about, okay, well, this tyranny. Is it the same kind of tyranny that you would see in like a monarchy? And he argues that it's, it's not. He says it's more of a tyranny of thought. Here's what he, this, And this is so interesting. Here's what he says. He says, thought is an invisible power that scoffs at all tyrannies. Today, the most absolute sovereigns of Europe cannot prevent certain ideas hostile to their authority from circulating within the country. It's not the same in America, he says. As long as the majority is uncertain, people speak. But as soon as the majority has irrevocably decided, everyone is silent and friends as well as enemies then seem to climb on board together. The reason for this is simple. There is no monarch so absolute that he can gather in his hands all of society's forces and vanquish opposition in the way that a majority vested with the right to make and execute laws can, at will, vested with the right and the force. He says, I know of no country where, in general, there reigns less independence of mind and true freedom of discussion than in America. And see, that's a very bold statement. And he goes on to say that he's not saying that people don't have opinions. He says they do. When he talks with them, they're happy to explain their opinions to him. But in public, when it comes to public discourse, they go along with the majority. He says, in America, the majority draws a circle around thought. Within these limits... The writer is free, but woe to him if he dares go beyond them. It isn't that he has to fear an autocrat, but he is exposed to all types of distasteful things and to everyday persecutions. A political career is closed to him. He has offended the only power that has the ability to open it to him. Everything is denied him, even glory. Before publishing his opinions, he believed that he had some friends. It seems to him that he has them no longer, now that he has revealed himself to all. For those who censor him speak openly, and those who think as he does keep quiet and distance themselves. He gives in, finally, under the daily effort. He yields and returns to silence as though he felt remorse for having told the truth. When I read that, I was like, wow, that is the seed of cancel culture. Tocqueville was talking about cancel culture already in the 1830s of the United States. I mean, He just described it. A person who publicly shares their opinion that is not popular with the majority quickly finds himself alienated from society, and all these doors are closed to him. He's not arrested. He's not thrown into prison and put in chains. He's not tortured on the rack. It's not the Spanish Inquisition. It's different. It's a different kind of oppression and silencing of speech and thought. And the person who dare says that has to retreat and yield and return to silence and has remorse for having even told the truth. And then he goes on to tell a little, like a little story about what this kind of cancel culture would look like. Here's here's what he says. He says, under the absolute government of one man, despotism, to reach the soul, it crudely had to strike the body and the soul, escaping from these blows, rose above it. But in democratic republics, tyranny does not proceed in this way. It leaves the body alone and goes right to the soul. The master no longer says, you will think like me or die. He now says, you're free not to think as I do. Your life, your goods, everything remains with you, but from this day on, you are a stranger among us. You will keep your privileges as a citizen, but they will become useless to you. If you aspire to be the choice of your fellow citizens, they will not choose you. And if you ask only for their esteem, they will still pretend to refuse it to you. You will remain among men, but you will lose your rights to humanity. When you approach your fellows, they will flee from you like an impure being. And those who believe in your innocence, even they will abandon you. For people would flee from them in turn. Go in peace, I spare your life, but I leave you a life worse than death. Again. That is cancel culture. That's that's the personification of a tyrannical uh, majority culture to someone who goes against the, the majority. I leave you your life, but I leave you a life worse than death. You will be alienated, in a sense exiled, excommunicated from the culture because of your unpopular opinions. So Tocqueville, after describing this tyranny of the majority and what it, what it looks like, he then takes a look at how it's affecting the american culture and what it's doing to the character of americans and he brings up a very good point i had not considered before so we have the issue of lobbyists right people who try to advocate for certain things and and try to curry favor with politicians in monarchies there the, it was very limited the number of people who would serve as lobbyists uh, because you had to have that kind of position, no, a noble a noble of some kind or very wealthy person. And, you know, there's only so many people that can get the king's ear and get time with the king. It was only a small number of people who acted, and what he calls them as, as, as courtiers, or we would call them as lobbyists. Um, but he says that what's happening in America is that everyone is becoming a lobbyist, uh, which I find That's very interesting. So here's what he says. He says, In absolute governments, the great who are near the throne flatter the passions of the master and willingly bow to his caprices. But the mass of the nation does not lend itself to servitude. It often submits out of weakness, habit, or ignorance, sometimes out of love, of loyalty for the king. But then he says, In free countries, in which each person is more or less called to give his opinion on matters of state, In democratic republics, in which public life is constantly mingled with private life, in which the sovereign is approachable from all sides, and in which it is only a matter of raising one's voice to reach the sovereign's ear, many more people are found who seek to bank on the sovereign's weaknesses and to live at the expense of the sovereign's passions than in absolute monarchies. Not that men there are naturally worse than elsewhere, but temptation is stronger and is offered to more people at the same time a much more general debasing of souls results. Democratic republics put the courtier spirit, or lobbyist, within reach of the greatest number and make it penetrate into all classes at the same time. It is one of the principal reproaches that can be made against them. That is true, above all, in democratic states organized like the American republics, in which the majority possesses such absolute and irresistible dominion that, in a way, you must renounce your rights as a citizen, and so to speak, your position as a man, when you want to deviate from the road marked out by the majority. So what we see there, being close to the position of power, to the, to the seat of authority in a democratic republic, uh, there's advantages, but there's also disadvantages. I mean, the advantages are, okay, the person listens to the voice of the people, right? But... What's the downside to that? The people are tempted to act like lobbyists and to to placate the sovereign or to, you know, say nice things to the sovereign or grovel to get the sovereign what 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 they want and the, and the sovereign or the representative person the person in office is is tempted to just play the part to not think for himself just do whatever uh, whatever the people tell, regardless of whatever whims they have or whatever uh, passions change in their hearts, just do whatever they want and give in to that public pressure. Uh, not think what you really think and not say what you really believe, but just do whatever you're told, uh, whatever you think the majority wants you to do. And it, so he talks about how this generally debases the souls because now everyone is getting involved in the political process, which in many senses is very corrupting, okay? So, you know, in the old days under a monarchy, yeah, you got the king and you got, he's on the throne, he's in the capital or the palace or whatever, and you have the courtiers there. But, you know, if you're living in some small town and you're a farmer or just a small business owner, there's not much you can really do about that. I mean, the king is the king and you, you just go about your life you love your neighbor, you mind your own business, and you're not so focused on being a lobbyist. But then, now in a democratic republic, everyone's voting, everyone is, has a vested interest in what's happening, and that person is so close by that there's a strong temptation uh, to start just focusing on being a lobbyist. And this all your mind and your life and your attitude uh, is all spent on how to get influence on the person in power, and then the next person, and then the next person, and pretty soon, you're not really spending your time with your family or your business or your neighbor. You're just becoming a lobbyist, um, a small a small town lobbyist, not like a, a national lobbyist, but a lobbyist nonetheless. The, the temptation is still there to uh, to base yourself in order to to get what you want. From the sovereign, and it's it's a great temptation because everyone's doing it. Everyone is tempted now to to do it, and it's it's kind of like a public pressure, if you will, that that leads to that. So uh, I don't want to go any further on that today. There's some more things I want to say about that, and it ties into uh, some future topics I want to address. But I just found this particularly interesting. This very insightful uh, chapter on essentially what he sees as cancel culture in the United States in the 1830s and the roots of it uh, and how it was going to play itself out. And I think uh, he hit he hit the nail on the head on that. I don't necessarily agree with everything he said. I mean, I do think that uh, elected representation is still so very important. But I do recognize the temptation that it brings. And I think as I've been studying history and politics and stuff more and more, I come to see that it's not so much uh, this, is the, this is always the, the good way and there's never any consequences, and this is always the bad way. Um, every way you pick has advantages and has consequences. Okay, now you have to weigh those out. What are the advantages to having a democratic republic? Well, one of them is that the, the desires, the cares, the concerns of the people are 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 more quickly communicated to those who wield political power, and so changes can be made more quickly um, in align with the uh, the overall mood or the overall desires of the culture. Now that could be good or bad, though, right? It depends on the mood of the culture. It depends on what they want to happen, and so. You know, there's a disadvantage to that. This this instability that can happen, where you know for for four years or five years you're doing this, and then it just changes four years later because there's a new there's a new person that just got elected in office, and and the opinions of the majority uh, changed. you know, why they changed might not even be for anything logical or, or rational. It just could be the, you know an emotional change, um, and then you get all these instabilities in government. You know, there's advantages and disadvantages to a monarchy. You know, you get a good person in there, you get stability for a long period of time. Of course, the longer someone's in power, the more temptation it is to use that power and abuse it. If you get a bad monarch or a tyrant, it's very hard to um, to, to 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 end that 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 tyranny because it's a monarchy, right? And it's very hard to to get changes done to appeal. Uh, because you don't have that close connection to the seat of power uh, that that you would have normally in a representative government. So we just have to think through these things, and Tocqueville is just highlighting the areas of weakness that he sees and what he sees happening in the United States. Now, he'll, he will go on later on, and we'll talk about this some other time, as to why it's being held in check, uh, and it's a cultural thing as to why it's being held in check. But it's not because there's something beautiful about democracy or majority rule that keeps itself in check. It's That's not it. There's something else holding it in check uh, and that we'll get to next time. So, anyways, I hope that you found this useful. You know, I, I would encourage you to uh, take a look at Tocqueville's work. I'm not necessarily saying read the whole thing, but I think it's definitely worth considering. Are taking a look at. Um, if you have any uh, questions, comments, or thoughts on topics like this, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. You can go on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, look at Governed by God there, Eric Leupold, and message me there. And I would be happy to answer your questions or, or talk about the topics that, that interest you. So please uh, share this show with friends and coworkers. workers um, Give it the reviews and the thumbs up. Uh, as you see fit, and until next time, take care and God bless.